Uh, I'm Dan Bouchel. This is uh, Mark Cooper. Uh, we work for Missions Resource Network. Mark is our Asia guy, oversees everything we do in Asia. I'm basically a bureaucrat and fundraiser uh, and uh, try to uh, help uh, churches in America understand and play their role well in missions. Uh, let me give you kind of a quick overview of what we do. You guys come on in. Uh, at MRN, uh, we do four things, mobilizing, equipping, preparing, and caring. Mobilizing is paying attention to what God's doing in the world and telling those stories and getting other people to join him in the places where there's the greatest opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Equipping is training churches and helping them develop a vision and best practices for engaging mission in the world. Preparing is training disciple makers, church planters, uh, and then caring is just the human resources end of missions. Uh, preparing, screening people on the front end, training and equipping and ongoing care and problem solving while they're in the field and then helping them come home well and reintegrate into American society when they come home. So that's kind of what we do. And uh, we've been talking this week about the lost gospel. Mark, what do we mean when we talk about the lost gospel? Believe it or not, we have a set of glasses called our culture, American Western culture, that we look at things through, whatever it is, including the Bible. And when we look at the gospel, we see it the way a Western American raised in a Christian cultural worldview will see it. That may not be the entire gospel. The gospel was written not in an American uh, point of view. It might surprise you. Jesus did not carry a United States passport. Uh, he probably wasn't white. He probably didn't have short hair. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Jesus uh, and the rest of the Bible was written in a Middle Eastern Asian context of at least 2,000 years ago, and the Old Testament even older than that. And so when we're talking about the lost gospel, we're talking about something that we haven't given attention to, something that we haven't looked at, seeing something like we've never seen it before. And in fact, it's the way the rest of the world would understand it better. But our slant on it has kind of hidden some of the gospel. And, and we grew up in a country that's a, of the Western tradition, Western Europe, and we've been experimenting now for a couple of centuries with something called the rule of law. The idea that above political leaders, there is the law, there is the constitution, it's the ultimate authority in our country, and everything's about the rule of law. In our country, we think if there's a problem, the way you solve it is, you write laws and you enforce laws, you punish wrongdoers. And so everything is gonna be solved through law and the rule of law, so in that context, the way that we have tended to hear the gospel is, you've broken the law. You are guilty. You deserve punishment, but here's how we solve the problem, the fact that you deserve punishment for breaking the law. Your problem is your guilt. And so we've really seized on the way that the gospel speaks to guilt. Well, that's good, because we're guilty. But, the Bible talks about a much more comprehensive understanding of what sin involves than just guilt. The Bible presents a salvation that's a whole lot bigger than freedom from the fact that we're carrying around guilt violations or a bill of indictment for our crimes against the law. And in the biblical context, the primary problem isn't that we broke laws. There are a whole lot of other issues. And we now are living in postmodern times 
And in the postmodern culture, there's a rejection of the idea of absolute right and wrong, a standard morality everybody has to succeed to. And we now live in a culture where people under 40 generally, and a lot of people over 40, just don't feel guilty. You have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our values, you need to live internally consistent with your truth and your values, and no one can judge anybody else. And we're telling people, here's how to deal with your guilt. And they're going, what guilt? I don't feel guilty. Mm -hmm. And we're preaching a gospel that really isn't connecting. And so we've had to make a switch to, now we have to tell people how guilty they are before we can tell them good news. So we come up behind someone, some, put our arm around it, punch them in the face <laughs> over and over again, and tell them how guilty they are, so we can tell them good news. And the world is saying, you hate us. You're haters. You are haters, and haters going to hate. They're not hearing good news. Well, but in the midst of that, we live in a world that feels a tremendous amount of shame. And if anybody steps out of line, they get publicly shamed. Shame is about fitting in, and then a whole lot of fear, a lot of other things. Well, let's just back up and talk a little bit about, jump over to the next slide if you would, Marty. Um, <clears throat> the gospel uh, addresses many, many other kinds of issues. That actually is not the slide that I wanted, but that's all right. I can get uh, it if you the, want. Yeah, if you would, pull up that other slide. Uh, I'll tell you what this one is. We tend to preach a message of guilt, and so we'll draw people in with other ministries that are kind of felt needs ministries. But then, once we get them there, we do a bait and switch, and we have to convince them how guilty they are so we can tell them good news. When the gospel actually speaks to a wide range of issues. So imagine a different set of issues down here. Imagine you're talking about somebody who feels a sense of alienation. They don't belong. Or they feel a sense of emptiness that their life has no purpose to it whatsoever. They may feel guilt, or uh, they may feel a sense of oppression, that there are spiritual forces and, and powerful forces that are over them, and they feel helpless and powerless in the world. Or they feel uh, intensely the unjust suffering in the world, that life is just one tragedy and disaster after another, and suffering, and how could a loving God allow this to happen? Well, the gospel speaks to all of those things because the gospel ultimately is an event, not an idea. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's an event. There is no theory of atonement in the New Testament. There's no unified theory of the atonement in the New Testament. There are all kinds of ways the New Testament talks about the significance of Jesus. We seize on justification. We seize on justification because it addresses the problem of guilt. But the Bible also spends a whole lot of time talking about such things as redemption, reconciliation, uh, endurance, consolation. So for people who feel a sense of alienation, that I am cut off, I don't belong to anyone or anywhere, this is a message of reconciliation that you are welcome. You are welcome here no matter what you have done. Uh, if you feel like you are under the power of spiritual oppressive forces and the principalities and powers of the world and you are powerless, there is a message of hope, a message of deliverance, and a message of redemption. And so there are all different ways the gospel speaks depending on how you experience the brokenness of the world. We, we know Galatians 1. If we or some other angel preaches you a different gospel, let them be accursed. We're not preaching a different gospel. We're talking about the fullness of the gospel. 
okay? Yes, guilt is part of that, but we've majored in that and we forgot that the gospel addresses many other things other than just guilt. The gospel evinces the, the entire <coughs> circumference of human brokenness. Uh, it, it, in, it, in, it, in, it is the good news for every kind of person Whatever their, their brokenness is, whatever their, their alienation from God might be, it's good news for everyone. The good news is, yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus went preaching the good news before He ever died, was buried, and rose from again. The good news was you can be a part of the kingdom of God. The abundant life. I'm the good shepherd. That's all good news too. And we've zeroed in on this guilt part. We've zeroed in on this forgiveness part. And that is good news for those who live in a guilt-based culture and, and feel guilty about their sins. And yes, whether you know about it or not, you have sins and you should feel guilty. And the good news is for that. But it's good news for a lot of other things as well. So there's a wide range of human needs where we feel the impact of brokenness or sin. Sin's not just guilt. Sin is also shame and powerlessness and hopelessness and alienation and just the kind of sense that life is vain and empty if I'm just going to die and be forgotten 500 years from now. Nobody will ever know how I live. Well, however you, we feel what's wrong with the world, the gospel speaks directly to that. We don't have to move people to guilt before we start telling them good news. And the way we talk about the gospel, we sit it in a courtroom and God is the judge and Satan is the prosecuting attorney and Jesus is our defense attorney and we do this weird kind of thing that ends up in a baptistry which doesn't really belong in a courtroom. You know, <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to focus in on that way of telling the story to tell good news. and We don't have to hammer in to people how guilty they are before we can start giving them hope for how they already experience brokenness. And then as people grow in Christ, they learn about all the different ways that brokenness manifests itself and how the gospel speaks to all of those. But one of the ways that, <clears throat> an oversimplified way of kind of understanding the three basic culture groups in the world is to talk about a guilt culture, a shame culture, and a fear culture. Uh, or sometimes we talk about a guilt innocence culture or a condemnation forgiveness culture or a shame honor culture or a fear uh, power culture. Uh, and in the West, we have predominantly been guilt-based culture. And we have preached a message about here's how you, your <clears throat> sins can be forgiven, how your guilt can be removed, but we have not helped people understand how do you overcome the shame that goes with that. The, the Caribbean and Africa and places like that are fear-based cultures. They're afraid of evil spirits. They deal with those. And, and of course, the gospel addresses that. Jesus is more powerful than that. And we don't preach that gospel. We try to make them feel guilty first. We don't just preach the gospel that Jesus uh, overcomes fear. And we're going to zero in on some shame stuff in just a moment. Just to give you an example of how this gets played out, um, <clears throat> the Bible talks a lot about justice and righteousness and how those things play out. And justice has more of a social phenomenon that everybody gets treated well and with proper honor. Well, in an American Anglo-dominant church, we focus a lot on individual rule-keeping and personal righteousness. Mm -hmm. But we don't pay much attention to social justice. What does that have to do with the gospel? That doesn't have to do with people's sins being forgiven. Mm -hmm. In the minority churches, like among the African-American churches, they have talked a lot about a gospel the cross speaks to social injustice. 
and oppressive systems and principalities and powers. And in the white church, we're like, what does that have to do with God? You know, and, and we'll see a, a moral problem that may crop up in the life of a, of a pastor or something. And, and we'll say, see, they just don't care about righteousness. And they say, well, they look at us and say, you don't care about justice. Well, now, wait a minute. We're going we're gonna to say God only cares about one or the other. Justice and righteousness work together. The gospel speaks to all the ways that human problems are broken. Um, so <clears throat> people who are rather powerless in the world, who are minorities or they're oppressed or they're under a system, tend to have a fear orientation or shame orientation. And the vast majority of the world is in a shame culture or a fear-based culture. And these things are, it's not like they, it's not like you only have one of these. It's kind of a percentage. In a guilt-based culture, you may talk about things in the language of guilt, but there's shame and fear there as well. Mm -hmm. And so these things are intermixed. It's a matter of percentages. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Okay. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, this is our third day. This has all been reviewed. We're going to read, if we have time, three different gospel stories and just say, what does this sound like from the different perspectives? How does this speak to a guilt-based understanding of human brokenness. How does this speak to a shame based or how does this speak to a fear based? Mm -hmm. So let's start off. We're going to be in Mark the whole time. Uh, I, I, I just love the way Mark tells his stories. He, he, he writes fewer stories and gives more detail and there's just a rich kind of narrative context. So uh, let's read this one together. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. All right, so... Familiar story, anybody who's familiar with the Gospels. But let's just take a look at a few questions here. What's the presenting problem in this story? How does the brokenness of the world manifest itself in this story? Paralysis. Okay, we've got a paralyzed man. The person could not get through the crowd because he was unable to. So people who are at a disadvantage are not able to to where they need to go. You know what I mean? So he's, not, he's paralyzed, but also his inability to navigate the crowd because of his paralysis, so he doesn't have access. Yes. 
Jesus wasn't teaching in a temple where there might have been a lot of space. He was teaching in somebody's home. Okay. So, you know, just there's that. Um, he had been ostracized from the culture in a way already. All right. So you see some ostracization there? Ostracization. How is sin understood in this story? Though? How does sin work in this story? We automatically default to guilt from our culture. It's related to his condition. Okay, so the first couple of answers indicated a medical problem. He has a medical problem, a physical problem. But in this story, is it seen as merely a medical problem? Mm -hmm. The leaders felt a certain, could have felt uh, some conflict uh, because they they're the power, the religious power of the community, uh, and here is a man who's coming with, uh, I mean, with a miracle, and I would think they would feel emasculated or something mm -hmm. by what he could do, if they, which they couldn't do. They connected the physical problem with sin. They connected the physical problem with sin. Does that necessarily mean guilt? There's this old Middle Eastern proverb that says, if you see a blind man kick him, why should you be kinder to him than God? It's the difference of the worldview that you can tell who is loved of God because they are blessed with wealth and, and they are blessed with health and they are blessed with good families and you can tell whom God rejects and who must have offended the honor of God because they are cursed and they are broken and so somewhere somewhere in this man's family this has happened now we tend to come from a rule of law individualistic guilt culture but Someone says the deity, the powers, may afflict his children in payment for the dishonor that was shown. Okay, so you can see our separating out of personal guilt and what, what did this guy do? Okay, we really oversimplified. And I, I grew up reading this story going, What does Jesus forgive his sins? What does that have to do with it? It's a strange response. That makes sense. Okay, let's look at the next question. How does Jesus provide this person good news? Jesus is addressing uh, a problem that we don't culturally easily understand because we don't equate physical problems with sin. And, and what has happened here, and, and I'm going to go ahead and break out the word shame, what has happened here is this man is not just paralyzed. He doesn't fit in. He's... He's, he's been shamed because the people wonder who sinned, this man or his parents. You know, that, that they wonder, you know, uh, this, this person must not be loved by God. And, and so Jesus, the very first thing this man needs, more than he needs to walk, how does Jesus provide this man good news? He says, let, let me paraphrase in the Mark Hooper version, uh, you are an honorable person. You deserve to be accepted in community. You, you are a person that's loved by God. Your sins are forgiven. What does Jesus do? 
it's not a guilt, sin forgiven message Jesus is trying to say here. That's what we default to. Oh, well, everybody has sins, and so Jesus is, you know, of course, he, he addresses his, his most important need that he doesn't even know about because he's come to be healed by his disease or by his paralysis, but Jesus addresses the most important thing and forgives them his sins first. That's the way I've always heard it interpreted. That's not necessarily true. What Jesus does first is give him what he wants most. That's the good news. He wants acceptance. He wants to be honored. He's been shamed his whole life because he's paralyzed. And Jesus gives him honor. Your sins are forgiven. You're like the rest of us. Some of y'all know the Old Testament. Who could not enter the temple? Gentiles, women, anybody who's been bleeding or having any kind of bodily fluids. Lepers. Lepers paralytics mm -hmm. this man cannot enter the temple he is outcast from the presence of the assembly of Israel the place where sins are forgiven and people have union with God fellowship with God he's not allowed in the door he's barred fellowship with God because of his paralysis. Now what, you know, think about the significance of that. He can't go where the sin offering takes place. He can't go where the fellowship offering takes place. He cannot be in the assembly when they eat the holy meats. And what did he do? Well, he somehow marked by sin which doesn't necessarily mean personal gift. Okay. So, how does Jesus provide him good news? How would you describe the good news here? I'm saying that um, the thing that everybody thinks is the problem with you, which would be like, you know, which, and which manifests itself in your physical problem, the reason why everybody um, you know, is not accepting him or whatever is because they think he must be a really despicable person, like you said. So obviously this has happened because he's a despicable person or somehow in his family line or something. So Jesus is saying all that thing that everybody thinks is wrong with you, I'm declaring publicly that that's not the case, that that's not the truth about you. Um, and, and so that you no longer have to live under that sort of, uh, you know, like... Stigma. Um, stigma, yeah. Right. yeah. You think about the stigma people have in our culture who have disabilities of one kind or another and feel like they don't fit in. But what if... The assumption was they were also under the rejection of God, a spiritual curse, and they were not acceptable people. They needed to be put off in an asylum somewhere for people like that because they're not acceptable in society. Well, I think it even goes a bit further than that in our society. How do you feel in your church when a woman who's obviously dressed like a prostitute comes into your assembly? Does she have sin that needs to be forgiven? Does she have guilt? Oh, absolutely. But so do we all. Okay. But she has more than that. She has the shame of her occupation. She has the shame of who she is. And what does that do when we walk up to her? Let's just say not me, but another woman walks up to her and puts her arm around her and says, we welcome you here. What does that do for her? That's good news. I'm being welcomed by this group of people. And I'm not shamed in this group of people. And, and all of a sudden, what's good news for this person? Yeah, she needs her sins forgiven. Obviously, that's, that's an important part. 
She also needs acceptance, and she needs honor instead of shame. That's what she needs. This reminds me a lot of the story of Mephibosheth, where you know David had said, no handicapped people in Jerusalem. And then, because of his covenant with Jonathan, he calls Mephibosheth in and treats him as his own son. He sits at the king's table. Yeah. sits at the king's table. Not to mention that Saul's family had been dishonored. Mm -hmm and was a source of shame, and now is honored. So you have the, mm -hmm. the honor shame reversal Mark talked about yesterday. Mm -hmm. All right, one more element, and then we're going to quickly look at three more questions just to point it out. What is the precipitating cause for Jesus to say this man your sins are forgiven? What does Jesus see that makes him say that? The faith of the people who brought him. The faith of the people who brought him. Here are four people who have befriended a cursed outcast and are community to him and showing him faithfulness. They are honoring the dishonored. They are including the excluded. They are bringing this person to Jesus in a very Christ-like move. And Jesus, in response to that, validates what they have done is the absolute right way to treat somebody like this and deals with the spiritual shame and, and rejection first and then demonstrates his authority to do so, an authority that belonged only in the temple and only to the priest, Jesus claims, in response to the behavior of four people who have befriended the outcast and the cursed. And there's a whole lot more in this if we don't just look at it from a guilt innocence perspective. So, how would you summarize, for example, how does this story speak to a guilt-based culture? If you only look at it from an American individualistic guilt-based culture, what is this? How does this story speak? You're, go ahead. Well, you have to heal his inner spiritual problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, and the most important thing is having your personal conscience clear. That's right. And then the second most important thing is how you're viewed by other people. I've actually heard this preach that he probably had a psychosomatic illness because of all the guilt he carried around for some past sin, which caused his paralysis. And and when his when, when his guilt was removed, then then he was. A, I'm I'm not joking. Mm -hmm. I, Who said that? <laughs> I'm not going to say. I heard that preaching. <laughs> okay. But if you broaden it out and you say, how does it speak to, in a shame-based culture, how does this story speak? More community. Yeah, he's welcome in community. It's not just his alienation. Um, however, he ended up under this shame focus. How would you... Go ahead. I was going to say, I'm also kind of Absolutely. Called out on yeah. That's the honor shame reversal. So the people who tear the roof off and lower this man down and interrupt Jesus, they look like they're doing wrong, but they get validated. And the righteous people who stand in condemnation of Jesus get shamed because Jesus does this repartee with them and and dishonors them, which is a big part of the way honor shame reversal happens, which Mark talked about yesterday. All right, now let's talk a little bit. We're not going to zero in so much on this one, but how does it speak from a fear-based culture where the problem is perceived as the spiritual forces that oppress people 
Yes, sir. Talks about his authority to produce. Absolutely. Something. So it shows very clearly that he has authority over something. Nobody else. Nobody else is going to be able to heal. To show you, I have authority. Okay. Jesus has power over the evil forces that oppress people. By the way, for the first thousand years of Christianity, the primary way salvation was understood is in Christus Victor, the victorious Christ who has power over the principalities and powers of evil. And the primary image was ransom, that Jesus paid the ransom to free those who were held under the power of Satan. Uh, we don't really use that image very much anymore because our culture has changed. Now, do you, before we move on from this slide, do you, do you see the glasses you're looking at the gospel with? You're only seeing it in a guilt-based culture. And until we helped you see the rest of this, you, you didn't really read this when Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. We didn't think about this or this because we're reading it with these glasses on. You may not be able to go into the temple, but you can come into the presence of God. But when I read this story with my Asian friends or my African friends, they pick up on this immediately. And they don't always pick up on this first. They'll get this, but they'll always pick up on this first. That Jesus is restoring his honor. <laughs> Jesus is accepting him into the community. Like you were talking about. I had this really interesting experience a few years ago. I was in Southern Africa at a conference and uh, a guy from America got up and preached a sermon on the difference between biblical miracles and modern miracles and essentially said, Gaza doesn't do anything today, so quit expecting that. Uh, and, you know, God works by providence, but he doesn't answer prayer, which I, I didn't follow the logic of that. Is this in Africa? Yeah, this is in Africa. And I'm sitting here at a conference with thousands of African leaders who have come from many countries, and they're, you know, nodding their head and being polite and everything. I'm like, going, God, so I'm in a room later eating a meal with some of these guys. And uh, they know me and I've got their trust. And like, what did you think of that sermon? And they all start hunting snakes. And they're just all over. And I'm like, what? Did, did you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That Jesus only deals with guilt? He doesn't deal with spiritual powers? And one of them said, he really took a risk in saying this in front of an American. He said, the white men have been telling us for decades that there's no such thing as spiritual warfare or witchcraft or miracles. And we smile and we nod. And when they leave the room, we say, those poor people don't have enough experience to know anything. <laughs> Fortunately, we didn't just give them sermons. We gave them Bibles. And they read these stories. And they're hearing and seeing things we're not. Unfortunately, we're not hearing things we need to hear and that our kids need to hear and the people around us need to hear. Okay, let's jump on to another story. Mark, why don't you walk us through this one? Mark 5, Jesus, uh, is a story of legion. They, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Sounds a little scary, doesn't it? And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons began begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Is there any gospel in that story? <clears throat> So, what's the brokenness here? Demon-possessed man. Demon possession. He's okay. isolated from his community. Isolated from his community by the way he's behaving. Self-destructive behavior. Self-destructive behavior. He's definitely in control or not in control. He's, he's being controlled by outer forces and he's destroying himself. What else? Any other brokenness you see? The people in this community are afraid of him. Yes. So causing fear and distress among his community. Yes. There, there's a rift in the community about this guy. I mean, they, they don't like going out there. I mean, he's, he hangs out in the, among the tombs and, and, and the hills, and he's kind of scary. And I, you, Can you imagine the, the, the stories and even the myths that are being told about this guy and oh, to the yeah, little children. children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, you know, this isn't just a Halloween story. This is every day. He's out there. Okay? And so there's a lot of brokenness, not just in the man, but in the community as well because of this story. Wouldn't hanging in the tombs represent uncleanness? Maybe not oh. on that side of the lake. Oh, absolutely. Right. You touch a dead body, you're unclean. I mean, well, that's but you really see on something here. Think about this from a Jewish standpoint. Where is he? We're in Gentile territory, mm -hmm. on a pig farm, mm -hmm. in the tombs, as unclean as with a demon-possessed man full for the thousand unclean spirits. You've got uncleanliness upon uncleanliness. I mean, Gentile, pigs, demon possession, tombs, dead bodies, self-mutilation. Moses said you're not allowed to mark your body, scar your body, just... Boom, 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 boom. Unclean, 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 unclean. It's a different category than guilt. Unclean, alone, cursed, demonic. Yeah. So how does Jesus provide this guy with good news? First of all, he befriended him. He, other people may not have befriended him. They were maybe afraid of him. He started a conversation. What is your name? Um... 
and so excellent he showed he cared about him he asked him his name yeah. I mean you know how many people do we come into every day and we don't even ask them their name uh, yeah Jesus befriended him very good point point. And, and, and along the same lines um, he didn't he didn't um, react in fear like this guy literally started running toward him uh -huh. you know and stopped right for him and I can imagine Jesus didn't like recoil back or be thinking like he probably just stood his ground you know, I'm guessing, you know. So, like, I'm sure he most did. people yeah. probably were like, if you saw that guy running towards you, you would want to run yeah. away because it would be scary, you know. Uh -huh. Wish I had a video of the disciples. If that yeah. <laughs> I bet they were turning around. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus listened to the story without contradicting the man. So, so what I'm imagining now is... Um, some people may have said to Jesus, come, you know, we want to show you this fellow who needs your help. You know, his name is Bob or whatever. Um, but then, then out of Bob's mouth comes, we are legion. Mm -hmm. And so um, Jesus is not saying, no, you're Bob. He's, he's talking to... Who he's talking to. Who's he, who he's talking to, mm -hmm. yeah. So Jesus recognizes the powers there. Mm -hmm. And so how does he provide this person good news? He deals with the problem at hand. Mm -hmm. Just like he did with the paralytic. Mm -hmm. He didn't immediately heal the paralytic's paralysis. He dealt with the problem at hand. And he immediately deals with Legion's problem. And that is not that he's not Bob. He deals with the fact that he's talking to all these demons inside of this man. And Jesus immediately addresses that. He responds yeah. to the request. Yeah. And the request is? Let us go into those pigs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's some good news here is he, and, and notice, what, is, what does Legion say when he sees Jesus? What do you want with me? I know who you are. Son of David, you know, the Messiah, the Son of the God of Most High. You know, I, I know who you are. The and, irony is the disciples don't know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> but the principalities or the evil spirits do know who he is. Yeah. Jesus is not afraid of this um, atmosphere of uncleanness. And so he's willing to go into that. Very good. Very Say that again, just one more time. Jesus is not afraid to go into the uncleanness. Exactly. Yeah. In, in the worldview of that time and place, uncleanness always trumps cleanness. We still think about that way. If your glass is 99% pure water and 1% fecal matter, is that good enough? How much corruption does it take? Any. The corrupt always has power over the pure. Mm -hmm. Jesus reverses that dynamic. Everywhere he goes, everything gets cleansed. Well, this is a chronological thing. He says, Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you have pure spirit, before he talked to him and asked his name mm -hmm. and accepted him. So, I mean, the impure spirit recognized Jesus. <coughs> Let me just go ahead and say, I think the good news that he provides for this person is his authority over these principalities and powers. But Jesus also, has power yeah. over the evil spirits. Uh, think about the shame that's involved here. This is a man who's completely naked. 
This is a man whose wrists and ankles are scarred and bloody. Who's got scabs all over himself where he beats himself with rocks and tortures himself with rocks. Whose hair is wild, whose teeth are black, and who has just been haunting this village. They've tried chaining him up. The shame. Where, where are his parents? Where are his family? I mean, he, he, they're nowhere near, right? He is dead to them. The shame and the isolation he feels is as extreme as you will find any human person ever having. And how does the story end? Jesus sitting at a bonfire, the man dressed in his right mind, sharing a meal. We're talking a, a Eucharist. This is a holy last supper kind of imagery. They're having a meal. They're fellowshipping. They are, he's in the community. He's welcome. All of the shame is removed by the authority of <coughs> Jesus. All right, so how does this speak to a guilt-based culture? Does this say much if you perceive the primary problem being guilt? How do you preach it to a <coughs> culture? The only way you could do that is if you made him somehow responsible for all the demons getting him. So you would say he sinned so as to open himself to yeah. the possession. He was playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. <laughs> yeah, too much Ouija word. Harry Potter. Reading Harry Potter. <laughs> listening to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Whoa. You got quick preaching. I went to meddling now. Yeah. I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan. So. Oh, me too. Uh, so, I mean, actually, it's kind of hard to preach this with the guilt innocence culture, isn't it? Because it feels like the man had just been bullied by the worst bully in the world. Oh, you know? yeah. And Jesus doesn't back down from that. He comes to his defense and says, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have this. Mm -hmm. Well, what about how does it speak in a shame-based, to a shame-based culture? Well, that's what we were talking about. Right? Yeah. I mean, you've been talking about the shame that he had and all of that. Okay. Yes, I think it's interesting that I'm guessing that the people might have not seen this man as a man anymore. Oh, they saw him as an animal, they yes. chained him up. But when Jesus threw the demons out, he separated the demons from the man and there was a man left. Mm -hmm. And so the animal that. speaks that beautiful. there's a man here inside of this mess. Restored his humanity. Yeah. yeah. And and his community. And he's getting sent back to his family to testify about the glory of God, the honor of God, and everybody's, we've never seen anything like this. Well, what about in a fear-based culture? Spiritual oppression, power, authority. Any good news here? Um, I was going to say this may not necessarily address that question specifically, but kind of talking earlier about like, um, you know, layer upon layer of uncleanness and the pigs and the Gentile and the all this kind of stuff, and the irony of that is the the disciples are Jews, which their path to God, <clears throat> their path to holiness is to separate themselves from all of this stuff, and Jesus is God himself illustrating to them that no, the path to holiness is not, um, you know, separating yourself from all this, but it's diving straight into it, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you see that and you see the authority of Jesus to deal with spiritual oppression, 
alienation, all these kinds of things, the, the gospel just becomes so much wider. Do we have people who feel like this guy in our world today? Mm -hmm. And if the only thing we know how to say to him is, it's your fault, you did wrong, and your sins can be forgiven, how are they ever going to get in their right mind and sit in the community of Jesus' disciples with their honor restored and free from spiritual forces? The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus puts an end to all of that and frees people not only of guilt, but shame and all the isolation that goes with it and oppression and all the power that people feel. Yeah, that, that fear part, I think we've got to say out loud, as we all know the story, a thousand demons cast into 2,000 pigs, and they're asking Jesus, please, don't send us away. Send us into the pigs, please. They know who has authority. It's they're not groveling. them. They're not challenging Jesus' authority. No, they're groveling. They're, they're asking for mercy. And, and, and so what does this story say to a fear-based culture? Jesus has all power. The, the things that hold on to you, and by the way, this we don't go to Africa just to deal with this. There are people right here in our communities that feel oppressed, that feel like, I can't get out of this. I, I, I'm stuck in this way of life. And they feel fear of an outside force controlling them. And Jesus is the good news for that. Just go to East L.A. All right, let's, uh, well, one other thing that I just think is, I think it's hilarious that, that you got dead pigs floating up on the other side, the Jewish side of the no. sea, <laughs> you know, bloated and dead and ultimate unclean, and, you know. But I mean, I, there's, a, there's a real sense of Jewish humor in that as well, I think, going on. But anyway, all right, let's uh, jump to the next story. A uh, little bit shorter, and we're not going to finish out the story because I just want to focus on the woman who always gets lost in Jairus' daughter's story. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come put your hands on her, so she'll be healed of live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body she was freed from her suffering. And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has, and the Greek word there is, saved you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. I know this is uncomfortable because it involves female issues, okay? <laughs> but female issues, bleeding of this nature, has huge significance in the law of Moses and in the life of people and all the implications that go with that. And it's not just a medical problem. It also represents uncleanness, uh, 
you could not touch another person. You could not, nobody could touch anything you had touched for 12 years. Mm. You could be stoned for touching a rabbi. Stoned for touching a rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about isolation, rejection, and what, who caused this? Yeah, gossip in the community. You know, who sinned? Yeah. You know, the, old, the question we were talking about a minute ago. And her, own, and her own sense of shame and guilt and dishonor. Mm -hmm. What have I done that I deserve this? Was it her husband? Mm -hmm. Was it her parents? Was it someone in her family? The whole family is under shame and under suspicion because God has afflicted her in this way. Somebody has offended the deity. And the, the story to me sounds like kind of somewhat wealthy, respected person in the community who this happened to, and then over the course of her trying by her own strength to figure out what's happening, and she has just lost everything, and she has just come down to the very bottom where she's now completely hopeless. And she turns to the only one that might be able to help her. You ever know anybody who's been bankrupt over medical issues mm -hmm. and still didn't get a cure? Talk about powerless. Yeah, I mean, is her problem personal guilt? Mm. Who's to say? It's not really, there's nothing in the story that would lead you to believe that. But is there brokenness? Do we see the effects of sin in the world? And I know we have a hard time separating sin and guilt in our minds, but sin is so much broader than guilt. So, how does Jesus provide her good news? Almost unconsciously. Is he offended that she's touched him? Is she allowed to touch a rabbi? Perhaps she thought she had reason to be terrified. She had reason to be terrified. She could be stoned for this. Yeah. To touch a man, to reach out and touch him, and to go through a crowd like that, how many people did she have to touch? And who all has she contaminated? And Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. Jairus is a man of great honor. His daughter is dying, and she has not delayed Jesus on a mission to take care of this synagogue ruler, his daughter. And she had, she was so desperate. You know? And Jesus stops, takes the time to learn her story. And instead of rebuking her, calls her daughter and pronounces her saved. And Jairus is like, tick, 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 tick. And Jesus is like, I don't want to operate your it's not a problem. Fine. Fine. Jesus always has time because Jesus always has power. Jesus honors her by saying your faith has made you whole or whatever. I can't remember the exact words. But it's such a statement of, of, um, of approval and uh, a positive statement when I'm sure nobody would give that kind of approval to her. 
um, they would be distancing themselves from her. But he, he was, uh, he, I just felt that it would, it would have been just like, a, uh, if I was in her position, I would feel greatly lifted up. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Like, I'm sorry. Maybe the reason why he called her out on it, rather than just kept walking and she, she's healed now, is to clear the air among the community. I want to call you out right now and acknowledge the fact that you have been healed. You know, and it's you know like like you are like you know what I mean. Like now, now everybody knows that because I mean, think about it. If she's been dealing with this for a long time. And she suddenly stops bleeding. It's like, oh, okay, prove it. Well, then how did this happen? Like, she's gonna have to go through a lot okay. of steps. To, you know what I mean? Think and about how hard it would be for her to prove she wasn't bleeding anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> After twelve years, how does her honor and her place in society get restored if Jesus just leaves? If all she got was the solution to a medical problem, it doesn't solve her biggest problem. Exactly. Exactly. Because she will carry the stigma the rest of her life and Jesus will not let her get such a paltry solution mm -hmm. and he wants the glory of God to be seen mm -hmm. for what he's done in the life of this woman and her honor to be restored mm -hmm. and one who cannot go into the temple cannot be part of the community of the people of God who can't even be touched is now called daughter saved and her mm -hmm. faith affirmed mm -hmm. just amazing yes Something you said, uh, and actually this story has always intrigued me, and it's just the phrase that Mark explains in the way power in the help of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I, I always imagine this glowing, uh, you know, aurora around Jesus, and all of a sudden power goes out, you know. But uh, you, you said something about the unclean trumps the clean, but actually we see just the opposite. Yeah, Jesus inverts them. And actually even the, you know, the whole message of the gospel, this is what Jesus came to do, was to bring, you know, you know make clean to that cleanse which the is unclean. Yeah. Not just on, you know, you know, she's almost like a prefiguration, you know, of mm -hmm. what Jesus will do. It's, it's a, a, you know, that phrase, the power went out, is, is, is just very, it's very intriguing, but very encouraging at the same time right. for that woman to, in the Old Testament, when, when power broke out, children of Israel in the desert, somebody got killed <laughs> for rebellion or some other kind of bad behavior. So in this case, the power is going out of the story. Oh, that's a beautiful picture, yeah. Yes, sir. He raises her to the level of importance of Jairus' daughter by calling her daughter. Mm -hmm. I've heard it said this is the only person in the Bible that Jesus referred to as daughter. And so, of course, everybody else is like you said, looking at their watch, oh my God, this is Jairus' daughter. And Jesus is saying, well, this is my daughter. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, everybody can that, understand how that powerful someone's rich. daughter is to them. And so, he really lifts her up in society. I mean, yesterday, nobody could touch her. She could have no interaction with anyone. She's completely isolated. She's a source of complete shame. Her body is a trap. And today, she is a daughter. She is esteemed. She is Jesus' spiritual daughter who has been saved by her faith, and her faith stands out. And I mean, it's just a whole transformation. All right, we've really kind of already addressed these questions, but if you only look at it from a guilt-based perspective, you see how limited this story is. It, it just, it doesn't have a lot of punch. And it's like, how do we get from this though to guilt? 
Forgiveness of sin. You know, it's, it's like Jesus wouldn't have called her out if it was just guilt, because it's, by calling her out, it's almost like he's like calling her guilty type of thing. But from a shame-based culture, all of a sudden, you see how the story just unfolds upon layer upon layer of salvation. So and do you then, see how much we're missing in the gospel? <laughs> if we don't put on some honor shame glasses along with our guilt cultural glasses and see it the way it was really intended to be seen. Because when, when the people there that witnessed this firsthand, they got all of that. They understood that. And when Africans and Asians read the story, they get this. And we don't because we're just thinking about sins and forgiveness and guilt and, and we don't understand it. But if you put on this honor-shame idea and, and you start reading about folks, it has opened up a whole new world of depth to the Bible for me to be able to read the Bible and ask it, okay, what does this mean in a shame-based culture? What does this mean in an honor-shame context? Look how many times in the Bible it talks about honoring God. How many times it talks about how God has restored our honor. And that's what, that's what the good news is about. It's not just about forgiveness. Oh, it is about forgiveness, but it's also about restoring our honor that was lost in the Garden of Eden and that we've lived in shame all these years and God is bringing us back, God is reconciling us back, restoring us to a place of honor, just like he did Jesus. Philippians 2, that we talked about yesterday, the cross was, even death on a cross was shameful, but God exalted him. Okay. Um, one project that I did a number of years ago when I was in school was uh, trying to understand how the different images for salvation in the New Testament speak uh, to homeless people. We were doing a lot of ministry with homeless people in the church where I was working. And so I had 10 narratives. I took 10 different images of salvation and crafted 10 narratives that sounded kind of like parables and read them to a series of homeless people and said, which of these speaks to you? Which is most good news to you? And the one that came out far above all the others was cleansing and washing. Mm. And I remember this one homeless man saying, I don't like to be dirty, but I have no place to clean up. Mm -hmm. And I sneak into people's homes, at uh, their, their yards at night, and, and clean in their swimming pools, or I find a, a hose that's unattached, and I can clean myself. I'm trying to clean my clothes, he said, because I just feel dirty all the time, and I feel rejected all the time, and I just want somehow to be clean, and the idea of cleansing and washing. Now, uh, I'm sure the guy's made a lot of mistakes in his life, I'm sure he's committed all sins in his life, so have I. But what he's saying is, I feel unacceptable to society. I need somebody to remove the shame that I feel, the cleansing imagery. He doesn't need me to tell him he's condemned by God. He doesn't need to tell me about all of his law-breaking of the laws of God. He needed to hear, Jesus is not afraid of you, and he is not afraid of your filth, and he is not afraid. He will cleanse you of why we have a baptistry in our church. We're all about the cleansing power of Jesus and restoring people to community. Talk to homeless people. What's the hardest thing about being homeless? Yeah, it's not sleeping in a box. It's having middle class and wealthy people walk by you and not see you because you are invisible. You are invisible. It's that shame. Uh, 
teenagers now who don't feel guilty are constantly shaming each other on social media mm -hmm. and the power of shame and exclusion <coughs> and who's in and who's out and you wore the wrong thing or you expressed the wrong opinion or whatever. And the shaming and exclusion and the pain they feel of shame to preset a message of acceptance, mm -hmm. of inclusion. And all of this comes back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All of these stories only work if Jesus defeats all of the powers of evil, sin, mm -hmm. and shame. <coughs> and takes the ultimate shame of rejection outside the city, hung up on a cross, marked out, absorbed all of it, and triumphs over it through the cross. And say, God is found among the places that we think are the most shameful. God is not afraid to go there. That's where you find him. And God defeats the most shameful, the most oppressive, and the most evil places. Yes, our law-breaking and our punishment is removed. But so much more. And so as our world diversifies, as globalization takes place, as we've got people coming in from all over the place, and as our own dominant culture in America recedes away from kind of a rule of law, we really need to recover the lost gospel and the power of the gospel to speak to so many dimensions of human brokenness. Mark, why don't you wrap us up? Yeah, well, that's it. We've got to recover the lost gospel mm -hmm. because the people are coming to us and... This guilt, innocence, forgiveness thing doesn't always speak to them. But restoring their honor and all the shame that they feel. And I'm not just talking about, although I am talking about Asians and Africans, Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, I'm not just talking about them. I'm talking about your own kids and your grandchildren. And I'm talking about your neighbor who has lived a despicable life and feels shame about it. God has a gospel for them. It's Jesus Christ. You want to wrap us up in a prayer? Let's uh, pray. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunities we've had to, to be challenged this week. And, and, and thank you for the blessing of, of being with this group of people today. And I just pray that you will open our eyes to see the depth of the gospel of Jesus and how it's not just uh, for people who think like us but it's for the entire world. It's for every person in every instance of their brokenness. And you restore us fully and completely through your Son, Jesus Christ. And you take away not just our guilt, you also take away our shame, and you take away our fear. And thank you for having such power, for being the, the God of the universe and for giving that power through Jesus to us. And Father, we just pray that we can be more like Jesus and that we can share the fullness of the gospel with the people around us where we live and where we go and who we interact with. And Father, help us to understand the gospel and to share it. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen.